Well, I invite you to turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5. We're going to be this morning looking at verses 27 to 30. But I'm going to read for us from verse 20. You can turn that fan off if it's too loud. And, um, so I'm going to read from verse 20, but we're going to focus this morning on verse 27 to 30. I just want to read from verse 20 to give you context. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. You've heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to counsel. And whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. So if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First, be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard, and you be put in prison. Truly I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members and that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. And Lord, this passage we are looking at this morning is heavy. For who here could say that they are not, in some capacity, sexually broken? We know, Lord, that you gave us our sexuality and it is meant to be good, but sin has distorted that. And I pray that as we look at your word here and what Jesus expects and requires and calls his people to, that you would give us ears to hear and minds to understand and hearts to receive your word. And that, Lord, we would by your spirit strive to live according to the ways of Jesus Christ. We pray this in his name. Amen. Well, in 2012, which is about 10 years ago, Forbes magazine estimated that the profit from pornography was between $60 billion to $100 billion worldwide. If you want to put that into perspective, Apple in 2012 posted a profit of $11.6 billion worldwide. In 2009, the worldwide sports events market, that includes all ticketing, media, and marketing revenues for major sports, was $64 billion. That's total revenue, not net profit, which would be less. Now, we don't know exactly how accurate these estimates are regarding pornography, 
due to the nature of pornography and how it's produced in the world, you don't really need any place, or really, you just need a room. Some guess it's lower and some higher. But everyone agrees that the profit from pornography is in the billions and billions and billions of dollars. Now, this sermon this morning isn't a sermon on pornography. But these numbers regarding pornography capture for us the lust-filled desires of the human heart that plagues so much of humanity, both male and female. It captures for us that the human race is drowning in uncontrollable, sexual, perverted desires. We live in a world and in a culture that thrives and celebrates the sexual fantasy of the mind and the degradation of the human body. And here in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus has very sobering words for us. Sobering words for the world, but primarily sobering words for his people. We as the covenant people of God, redeemed by the blood of Jesus, we are called to come out of Babylon and to not participate in the sins of Babylon. And if there is one area in which the evil and perversity of Babylon has entered into the church, it would be that of sexual immorality. And this ought not be so. And Jesus here in the Sermon on the Mount has something to say to us about sexual sin. And we must hear him speak and heed his words. Now as we've seen over the last two Sundays, Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount is painting this beautiful portrait of the flourishing, whole, virtuous life that he desires and expects his disciples to pursue and live according to. He presents a picture of what it looks like to live virtuously or righteously in a fallen world that we might flourish and live whole or holy lives just as our Heavenly Father is whole and holy. And remember, this isn't Jesus presenting a vision of life in order to obtain salvation, but rather a vision of life that can only be lived out by those who have experienced true salvation in Jesus and have been given the empowering of the Holy Spirit to walk in the ways of Christ. Not perfectly, of course, but faithfully. Now, as we've seen over the last two Sundays, the, the core of the sermon is Jesus calling his hearers to this greater righteousness than that of the scribes and Pharisees. From chapters 5, verse 21, all the way to chapter 7, verse 12, Jesus is articulating this greater righteousness. The, this greater righteousness in relation to the law, this greater righteousness in relation to piety or devotion towards God, and then this greater righteousness in relation to the world. And the first area he addresses, which we saw last week, was the area of murder and anger. And as we saw, Jesus is getting to the true intentions of the law by demonstrating that true righteousness cannot be obtained merely by external acts or not participating in certain acts, but true righteousness is a matter of the heart. 
You see, you may have never murdered anyone, but your heart may be in the same state as a murderer if you are filled with anger towards another. See, this greater righteousness is concerned not just about external behavior, but the internal heart of man. And here in verses 27 to 30, Jesus continues to articulate the same idea, but through another example. Just as thou shalt not murder comes from the Ten Commandments, Jesus takes one of the other commands, the seventh command, thou shalt not commit adultery. And what he does is he explains the true intentions of this command, the fullness of what this command means. And this would have been a wake-up call for every person hearing Jesus' words, especially the scribes and the Pharisees. You see, the way in which the scribes and the Pharisees interpreted God's law, it permitted them, it allowed them to think that they were law keepers simply on the basis that they had not committed the act of adultery. Which means, in their minds, they could have lied in bed at night, fantasizing and lusting after a woman that was not their wife, But because they had not committed adultery, they viewed themselves as law keepers. They, as John Stott says, gave a conveniently narrow definition of sexual sin and a conveniently broad definition of sexual purity. See, what they didn't understand was how the Tenth Commandment related to the Seventh Commandment. What was the 10th commandment? Exodus 20, 17. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbor's. In other words, it's not simply don't commit adultery with your neighbor's wife, though you ought not do that. It's also don't covet your neighbor's wife. Lust after your neighbor's wife. And so here Jesus says, you have heard that it was said, You shall not commit adultery, but I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Now, a few things we need to see here. First is pretty obvious. Adultery, that is, when a man or a woman is unfaithful to their spouse with another man or woman, it's sinful and evil in the eyes of God. There are several reasons for why it is, which I'm not going to go into detail here, but let it be stated. Adultery is evil. It's a breaking of one's covenant, a breaking of one's word. It's contrary to what God has declared is good for human flourishing. It's destructive to children and the person who's been wrong and the person who's done the wrong. It leaves devastation in its tracks. Now, I'm not saying that adultery is the unforgivable sin. It's not. It's a serious offense against God, but it's not unforgivable. There is forgiveness and mercy for repentant adulterers, but that doesn't mean that there are not major lifetime consequences to such sin. Just look at David's life and how his life unfolded after his sin with Bathsheba, though he had been forgiven by God. And if you are here this morning and are in an adulterous relationship and claim, to bear, and claim to bear the name of Jesus, I plead with you as a fellow brother, come clean with your spouse 
and come clean with God no matter what consequences may fall. Adultery is evil. And we need to hear that this morning in light of the fact that our culture in subtle ways tries to present adultery as almost a liberating thing at times. You see that a lot in Hollywood movies. A woman leaving her husband because she has found the man she was truly meant to be with, and vice versa. There is nothing remotely romantic about adultery, no matter how much Hollywood tries to spin it that way. From beginning to end, the scriptures condemn adultery, and Jesus here affirms this. But Jesus doesn't end there. He goes further. He gets to the heart of the issue and shows that if you want to be more righteous than that of the Pharisees, it's not enough to simply avoid the adulterous act. You must slay the adulterous heart. Or as Methodius of Olympus, the church father, said, it is not the fruit of adultery that he commands us to cast out, but its seed. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Or vice versa, this is not just in reference to men lusting after women, but it includes women lusting after men, or even the lusting of the same sex. Jesus is speaking to the issue of lustful intent, no matter how it may manifest itself in one's life. And in this statement, we see the high calling that Jesus has for his followers. This greater righteousness that is required for his people to pursue. You see, we may never have committed the act of adultery. But most likely, we have all committed, in some capacity, heart adultery. Lust is not a man's sin. Lust is a human sin. Both male and female struggle with this. Just like with that of murder and anger, Jesus is getting to the heart of the issue. He's causing us to not just examine our actions, but our hearts, the internal desires that we experience. He's causing us to ask the questions of, what do I truly love? Where do my affections truly reside? See, you may never commit physical adultery, and yet your heart may be inflamed with uncontrolled, lustful desires for others. And Jesus says that makes you an adulterer in the heart. And you can never experience the whole virtuous flourishing life that God desires for you while your heart is enslaved with lust. Not only that, he warns that the adulterous in heart is susceptible to the judgment of hell. See, do not simply examine your actions, my friend. Examine your heart. For God will not merely examine your actions. He will gaze deeply into your heart to see the kind of person you truly are. He will gaze into my heart to see the kind of man that I truly am. He will judge us on the state of our heart, not merely the actions we've committed or not committed in regards to our sexuality. We may be able to hide 
the fire of lust within us from others, but not from God. God will not stop at our mere actions. He loves us too much to not stop at our mere actions. He wants us to see us flourish and to live the virtuous holy life, and therefore He will not merely address the external in our lives, but the internal. Because the internal will ultimately direct and lead and guide the external. As John Stott so wisely said, deeds of shame are preceded by fantasies of shame. So here Jesus gets to the heart of the issue. He shows us the full intention of what thou shall not commit adultery means. And it's sober. It ought to stop us in our tracks and truly ask ourselves, am I living in my heart an adulterous life? Am I enslaved to the sin of love? Now, with that being said, I want to ask three really important questions that I think this passage exhorts us to wrestle with. Here are the three questions. One, what is lust? Two, why do we lust? And three, how do we fight against the lust that resides in our hearts? So number one, what is lust? I think this is an important question Because I think there is much confusion in the Christian world, especially the evangelical world, pertaining to what actually makes something lustful. There are a lot of Christian books that young men and women have read growing up that I actually think do more harm than good. So I think a good way to help us understand what lust is, is to first understand what it's not. First... Lust is not simply looking at the form of a person. Notice that Jesus doesn't say, but I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman has already committed adultery with her in his heart. He doesn't say that. He adds with lustful intent. That's the key. There's an intention behind what one is doing. Further, Being attracted or noticing the physical beauty of someone, even appreciating the physical beauty of someone, is not lust. For example, if a good-looking man walked into our church and one of you ladies noticed him and thought, wow, he's a very good-looking man and I'm drawn to him physically, that's not lust. That's just natural, physical attraction. In other words, you can appreciate the physical form of a person without lusting after that person. There's a big difference between appreciating the beauty of another person and treating the beauty of another person as a thing for your own self-gratification. For example, when, when David saw Bathsheba bathing naked, we're told this. It happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house that he saw from the roof a woman bathing and the woman was very beautiful. David noticed the beauty of Bathsheba. And in that moment, I don't think he sinned. Him simply seeing her in the state she was in and noticing her beauty was not sin. That's human. 
It's what he did next where he crossed the line and David sent and inquired, inquired about the woman. He started to ponder the potential of what could happen with her sexually. He allowed his mind to go further than simply noticing her beauty and the fire of lust grew and that fire of lust led to adultery, to deception and even murder. So being attracted, noticing the physical beauty of someone isn't lust. And I think that's important for us to understand because sometimes we can make unrealistic expectations of ourselves and even our spouses. When I was in high school, after reading the book, um, Every Man's Battle, which I don't recommend, first off, because it's not every man's battle. But secondly, it almost overmade me think the issue of lust in my life to the point where I made it my aim to avoid at all costs noticing the form of a woman. Well, you can imagine how well that went. But here's what that did. It made me feel hopeless and dejected because I felt that as long as I noticed the physical beauty of a woman, I was lusty. When in reality, I wasn't always. And so it's central to understand the difference between natural attraction, beholding that which is beautiful, and that of lust. It's central to understand the difference between appreciating the beauty of a human being and that of lusting after that person. So what is lust then? Well, here's how I would attempt to define it. Lust is when you look upon another person with the intention of using your imagination to fantasize about them in a sexual manner. You begin to ponder what it would be like to be with them sexually. You begin to think of different scenarios and in so doing, you are finding some kind of sexual pleasure from such fantasy. I love the way how Pennington puts it, admiring beauty or experiencing the natural attraction to beauty is not the issue here, but rather using the creational gift of the imagination which functions in the heart for the purpose of fantasizing about and objectifying another man's wife as a sexual partner, and I would add, any person, whether married or not. That's what lust is, and that's what Jesus is addressing here. So let me try to give you an example, which I think will be helpful. If a woman could read your mind, or vice versa, and she saw that you thought her to be attractive or beautiful, in her heart, she would probably appreciate this. She would probably say something in her mind, something along the lines of, wow, he thinks I'm pretty, or she thinks I'm handsome. Whereas if you were lusting and she read your mind, she would probably feel degraded, violated, and dehumanized. And that, to me, is the difference. Listen, this might sound controversial, but I don't think it is. We've been made by God to find the body beautiful. We're not made, however, to use the body of another. 
I want us to see the distinction between noticing the beauty or even appreciating the beauty of someone and then fantasizing about their beauty in a sexual way. We were made by God to understand and appreciate the beauty of the body properly and lust is that which distorts it. Lust is when we degrade a person and one's body. So that's what lust is. And that, I think, is what Jesus is addressing here. Now, before I move on to the next question of why do we lust, I want to address an accusation that is often thrown at Christians pertaining to sex and sexuality because I think it's related to this idea of lust. And the accusation that is often thrown towards Christians is the idea that Christians are anti-sex or anti-pleasure. That we're somehow against sexual expression and sexual freedom and liberation. That we think sex is bad. But that simply is not true. I actually think the opposite is true. Those who claim to be sexual liberators are actually anti-sex. And here's why. They reduce sex to a mere physical act and thereby destroy the fullness of what sex is supposed to be. You cannot read the scriptures rightly and conclude that God is somehow against sex. Just read the Song of Songs, for goodness sake. Or Proverbs 5, 18-20, with a father speaking to his son about his wife, let your fountain be blessed and rejoice in the wife of your youth, a lovely deer, a graceful doe, let her breasts fill you at all times with delight, be intoxicated always in her love. Why should you be intoxicated, my son, with a forbidden woman and embrace the bosom of an adulteress? God is not anti-sex. He is anti the degradation and the violation of sex. I mean, just think about this. Who made the male and female body? God did. Who gave them their sexual organs? God did. And just think about this, and I mean this with a respectfulness and a reverence. God could have created the body, both male and female, to be aesthetically unappealing. He could have given us boxes for bodies. But he chose rather to give men a body that captures their masculinity and women a body that captures their femininity. And God intended that when both the sexes would see one another, their response would be, wow. Or as Adam put it in the garden before the fall, this is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. Modern translation, wow. Eve is beautiful, and I want to love her. You see, the Christian view is that sex and the body and the soul that makes up a person are so sacred that it can only be degrading and destructive when practiced outside the context of covenant love in marriage. And that's why lust is so evil, because it's the, it's the degrading of a person made in the image of God. It's the, a de, de, the degrading of their body. It's reducing them to mere flesh for your sexual satisfaction. It is, as Jonathan Van Maren so powerfully puts it, sexual 
cannibalism. Christians are pro-sex and understand the power of sex, that it therefore ought to be only engaged in in the most exclusive relationship a human can experience, covenant marriage. Or as Christopher Wright, Wright puts it, sexuality is an invitation into the inmost of another. And therefore, sex cannot be reduced to mere physical pleasure because sex involves the entirety of a person. See, Christianity is against the degradation of the sacred. And the body and sex are sacred gifts from God. So no, Christians are not anti-sex. We are anti the degradation of sex and the human person, both body and soul. So we've defined what lust is, but I want to ask, why do we lust? Why do we lust? If we understand why, I think it will help us in the how to fight. Now I realize in one sense, the answer to why do we lust is quite simple. We're sinners living in a fallen world. Sin has corrupted our good sexual desires that were made by God. The fall distorted those desires. We're sinfully broken creatures and sin has distorted our sexuality. But let's go a little deeper than that and begin to wrestle with how has sin done that? What is it about sin that leads us to lust after another human being? Now I realize that there are probably a lot of factors for why a person may struggle with lust. For example... I was exposed to hardcore pornography at the age of 10. That has implications for one's life. So there is a a complexity to this question, and I don't want to downplay that, but I want to get to the heart of the matter. What is it that drives us to lust? And I'm going to be a little vulnerable here in that what I'm I'm articulating is, is, is what I think the Scriptures clearly teach, but it's also what I have examined in my own soul. And I think you'll relate to what I'm saying if you've ever remotely contemplated sin in your life. So let me articulate the reasons I don't think we lust, yet some people think they are the reasons. So let me give you two scenarios. I want to speak to the married here and the single person. If you're married, I don't think at the heart of lust is due to the fact that you find another person to be more attractive than your spouse. That's not the reason you lust. That's not the real reason. And here's why. Lust isn't fundamentally about beauty. It's not fundamentally about beauty. A husband doesn't lust after another woman, or a wife doesn't lust after another man, Fundamentally, because they find this other person more beautiful. I can't tell you the number of married men who have expressed confusion to me because they found themselves lusting after individuals who they didn't actually find as beautiful as their own wives. You see, the assumption was they thought lust had to do with beauty. But it doesn't. If you're single as a Christian... You need to hear this. You don't lust 
because you don't have an outlet to express your desire. And here's why I know that. Because married Christian men and women who do have an outlet to express their sexual desire still can struggle with lust. So to simply say, I struggle with lust because I don't have an outlet to express my sexual desire is simply not true. This is why I say to young men and women, but especially men, marriage and being able to have sex with your spouse doesn't solve one's lust problems. In fact, many men I have spoken to have admitted to me that lust and pornography got harder after they got married, not easier. And here's why. Through lust and pornography, they were feeding selfish, wicked desires, but sex within covenant marriage is meant to be a self-giving act to another person. It's an act of service. Their lust and pornography distorted what sex truly is. See, in sex, we're supposed to be giving our bodies to another, whereas when we lust, we are consuming the body of another. So what is the fundamental reason for why we lust? Here it is. We lust because our sinful hearts crave the forbidden. We lust because our sinful hearts crave the forbidden. And whether you're single or married, there is always the forbidden. James 4, though it's not speaking about lust, it speaks to this idea. What causes quarrel and what quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, or you can literally translate that, you crave because you do not have. So you murder. You covet and cannot obtain. So you fight and quarrel. We crave what we can't have. We thirst for that thing which we cannot touch. This is precisely what sin is all about. We don't crave the permissible fruit. We crave the forbidden fruit. God gave Adam and Eve every tree with its fruit. But there was one tree that was forbidden. And they had to have that one tree as well. See, the reason we lust after a man or a woman is because that which is forbidden intoxicates us because our sinful hearts want what God has forbidden. This is why we lust, because we crave for the very thing we cannot have. This is what sin has done to us, and a part of what Jesus does in saving us is to transform us in such a way that our delight is now in that which is truly good, true, and beautiful, to delight ourselves in the permissible, not the forbidden. And so we've thought about what lust is, and we've wrestled with why we lust. And the final question I want us to wrestle with is this. How do we fight against lust? How do we fight against lust in order to become the righteous, virtuous, whole people that God desires. 
Well, in verse 29 to 30, Jesus gives us at least part of the answer. And we're only looking at part of the answer. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members and that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members and that your whole body go into hell. Now there's two ideas here in which to fight against lust. One is an exhortation and the other a motivation. First, the exhortation. What Jesus is saying is this. Be vigilant in killing lust in your life. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. If your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. Now, Jesus isn't speaking literally here. This is hyperbolic language. It's a dramatic figure of speech to capture the measures that one ought to go to in order to live a virtuous life according to Jesus' kingdom ethics. See, here's why you will totally miss the point if you take what Jesus is stating literally. You pluck out your right eye to keep you from looking at a woman or a man to lust after them. What's the problem with that? You still have a left eye. And you only need one eye to sin. And the same is true with your right hand and your left hand. Jesus isn't calling us here to mutilation, but rather mortification. He's saying that in order to live a virtuous, holy life in regards to our sexuality, which is good, we must be drastic in our fight against lust. We must be willing to cut off anything that would be a hindrance to us. We need a mean streak, not against others, but against anything in our lives that would cause us to degrade the sacred body of another person and the glory of Jesus in our lives. We, know we need a hostile attitude toward anything that would prevent us from living the virtuous, flourishing, whole life that Jesus desires for us. And we must take action and cut off anything that would be a means for us to lust. In other words, stop playing with temptation. The scriptures are consistent all throughout. Romans 13, 14. But put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. Colossians 3, 5 to 6. 6 put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. Or kill what is earthly in you. Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire and covetousness which is idolatry on account of these the wrath of God is coming. 1 Peter 2.11 Beloved I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. There's no room to flirt with your lust. If we are to live as faithful followers of Jesus, we must take a sword to the dragon of lust and do all that we can to rid ourselves of evil, lust-filled desires. 
Pluck out your eye, cut off your hand, make no peace with lust, wage war against it. That's the idea here with this powerful imagery of plucking out your eye and cutting off your hand. And so that's the first idea on how to fight against lust. That's the exhortation. The second idea is more of a motivation. Eternity hangs in, about, in the balance. Jesus wants to motivate us to put lust to death, and he does so by helping us see the consequence of not putting lust to death. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away, for it is better. It's better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members and that your whole body go into hell. A life surrendered to lust will lead to an eternal misery. A life devoted to waging war against lust will lead to eternal joy. See, here's really what Jesus is getting at. When it comes to fighting lust and really any sin, we need to have an eternal perspective. If you don't have an eternal perspective, you will not be able to really overcome sin. If you don't understand and live in light of the fact that what lies before us is either eternal misery or eternal joy, eternal life or eternal death, then it will be so much easier to give in to self-gratification. Because here's what Jesus is saying. It's better that you be crippled in this life, limited in this life, than be thrown into hell for all eternity. And so here's what's before us. Here are the two options that Jesus places before us. You can have temporary self-gratification with eternal misery. Or you can have temporary self-denial with eternal joy and delight. That's the two options. Followers of Jesus. Disciples of Christ. This is the righteousness that exceeds that of the Pharisees. This is the righteousness that we are to strive for by the empowering of the Spirit of God. Babylon is drowning in lust and sexual degradation. Let us not be participants in such evil, but let us live as citizens of Christ's kingdom. Christ is calling us as his blood-bought, redeemed people to live virtuous, virtuously and whole lives so that we might flourish and help others flourish as well. You see, if Jesus was willing to be slain for the penalty of our sin, then ought we not be willing to slay our sin out of thankfulness? And love for him. Ought we not go to the great to great lengths to wage war against the lust in our hearts, since he went to such great lengths 
to redeem us from our sins? I, I want you to think about this. Just how contrary lust is to that of the gospel. Some of the most sacred words that have ever been spoken are words we hear every time we take of the Lord's Supper together. This is my body, which is given for you. That's the gospel. But lust is the opposite. This is your body, which I will take and consume for myself. Now before I end, I feel it's important to really speak to you pastorally this morning. I have no doubt that there are some of you here today who feel dejected, hopeless, when it comes to sexual sin and temptation and lust. We live in a sex-saturated culture, and it's hard to escape. It feels impossible at times. Maybe pornography or something else has grasped your heart, and you feel completely hopeless. And you may be thinking, Peter, I agree with everything that was said here, but I feel hopeless in my fight. I really do want to live for Jesus, but I feel finished when it comes to sexual sin. And I want to say this to you as your pastor, but also your fellow brother, who has felt those very same things at times in my life. The focus of this series is Jesus' call for us to live virtuously and to flourish. And it's demanding. It's demanding. And I don't ever want to downplay nor lighten the demand that Jesus has for us. But here's what I also know. Jesus loves his hurting, struggling, and even defeated sheep. He leaves the 99 to go after the one. He's the one who said, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. So if you feel hopeless and defeated, hear this from me. There is hope. There is healing. But healing doesn't happen overnight. Healing can be painful and long, but if you're willing to fight through the pain, there is healing and wholeness. But here's what I would say to you. The first place, the first place to start is this. You will not overcome this kind of thing on your own. And therefore, come into the light. Talk to a brother or a sister. Get the help you need to begin this journey of restoration in Christ. I want to close by reading to you 1 Thessalonians 4, 1-8. Hear what it is that God desires for us. Finally then, brothers and sisters, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you receive from us how you ought to walk 
and to please God just as you are doing, that you do so more and more. For you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus, for this is the will of God. This is the will of God for your life. Your sanctification. That you abstain from sexual immorality. That each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor. Not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles or the Babylonians who do not know God. That no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter because the Lord is an avenger in all these things. As we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you. For God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. Therefore, whoever disregards this, disregards not man, but God, who gives his Holy Spirit to you. May God help us. Let's pray. Father, we come before you. And we thank you for the precious gift of our sexuality and the precious gift of our bodies. And we ask for forgiveness, Lord, for the ways in which we have distorted our sexuality and sinned against our bodies or even against the bodies of another. Forgive us and cleanse us. And Lord, lift us out of the darkness and out of the miry clay and help us to behold you in all of your splendor and glory. To love that which is truly good and beautiful and true. To think upon those things which are lovely and excellent. To marvel at the glory of our sexuality without degrading our sexuality. Help us in this Lord. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.